Welcome to Roads Ahead, our series on thought leadership with the Roads Community and Partner Programs. I'm delighted to be here today with Dr. Shubha Nagesh and have a conversation about our work related to inclusion, advocacy, and accessibility for people with disabilities before and during the COVID pandemic. My name is Sarah Rotenberg, and I am a Rhodes Scholar reading for a DFO in primary healthcare. My background is in global health and development, but my DFO research focuses on training health workers about disability. Previously, I worked on a wide range of topics, including equitable access to vaccines during epidemics, irrigation governance reform in India, and how to reap the demographic dividends in Sub-Saharan Africa. During the pandemic, I have had the privilege of working with the Government of Canada, the World Health Organization, and the Missing Billion Initiative, and the World Bank on various projects related to COVID-19 response, health financing, and disability inclusion. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by my good friend, Dr. Shubha Nagesh, uh, who will introduce herself now. Thank you, Sarah. So my name is Shubha Nagesh. I'm a medical doctor by training and a global health graduate from Karolinska, Stockholm, as an Erasmus scholar. I presently serve as the director of research and community follow-up programs at the Latikaroi Foundation, one of India's foremost disability organizations. We're based out of Dehradun, Uttarakhand, India, which is the Himalayan state. So for 10 years now, I have initiated, developed, and implemented community programs which take services closer to the community, either in a peripheral health facility or within the home of the family whose child was born with a developmental disability. I'm also a Senior Atlantic Fellow in Global Health Equity at the George Washington University, I'm a Gates Fellow with the Executive Program in Global Health Leadership at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I serve as a mentor with the Global Health Mentorships Program for the Disabilities Cohort. And I'm also a mentor with the Canadian Society of International Health. My passion is to make childhood disability a global health priority. Previously, I have served as a clinician with the National Health Service in the United Kingdom and as a national consultant with the AIDS Control Program, Government of India. So how did I meet Sarah? As someone who works for a small nonprofit in one of India's smallest hill states, opportunities for career advancement or just to be part of peer groups are very few. So when I started looking around for opportunities, the Atlantic Fellowship for Global Health Equity opened a door for me one that allowed me to access experts, platforms, peers, and opportunities that I couldn't have imagined of otherwise. And this experience added a whole dimension to my work and something shifted for me in my own approach to the same work. When the fellowship concluded, we were introduced to the Atlantic Institute. And when one of the newsletters mentioned a Rhodes Scholar who worked on disability and was looking to collaborate, I immediately reached out and wanted to connect. Sarah and I started to communicate, and both of us were very keen. So the pace picked up from the beginning and stayed upbeat. We discussed many ideas, and I expressed an interest to write about how the pandemic had disadvantaged persons with disabilities, but also if it could become a window of opportunity for policymakers to implement universal accessibility. For this could be a watershed moment in history when accessibility could become a priority and make the world a better place for more than a billion people with disabilities and for everyone else too. So the article was eventually published in the Hindu, one of India's most respected newspapers. And since then, we've gone on to write for the BMJ Global Health blog, 
around enhancing accessibility for medical doctors with disabilities in medical schools in India. And very recently, we published an article in the DevEx around centering disability in the equitable distribution of vaccines with a particular focus on disabled people. So Sarah and I have found many connections in common and we share an enthusiasm to take our work to greater heights. And who knows what this collaboration can accomplish because we're both very optimistic. We're firing on all four cylinders. We're popping with ideas and dynamic energy. Very importantly, we're both grounded in a deep respect for the people we wish to help change the world for. Over to you, Sarah. I have to say it's been a real honor working with you, Shuba, on these important issues, especially since they're so important to me. Uh, for My passion for disability inclusion is deeply personal as I'm a person with a disability myself and also a caretaker for someone with a disability. Um, and we were talking earlier about how uh, how we both got interested in this topic. And I think a lot of it is this passion. Um, for me, it, this is really personal because I, I realized how little public health and global development work talks about disability outside of a more medical model. Uh, when I did my undergrad in the US, I focused on global health, but few projects or classes looked at how equity or inclusion meant and incorporated people with disabilities. And while I'd grown up in Canada, where I had the privilege of legal protections around obtaining an education, accessing healthcare, being employed, I still face and continue to face many barriers and stigma when I choose to disclose my disability. So I was always thinking about health policy and then in the background thinking about how my uh, sort of the largest minority in the world, people with disabilities, also wasn't included. Um, and so I still remember the first time I took this on uh, was with the support of Georgetown's India Initiative. Um, and I got to spend the summer and seven months in India looking at the accessibility of the metro and making recommendations on how landmark infrastructure development projects could be more accessible to people with disabilities. And part of this experience is actually what drew me to working with Shuba, given she is based uh, in India. And I really admired her allyship and shared vision of how to make things accessible. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. And for me, when I returned from Karolinska Institute in Stockholm 10 years ago, and I was looking for work, I started working with the Latika Roy Foundation. Like I said, it's one of India's leading organizations in disability. And very soon, we were awarded a Sightsavers funded innovation grant through which we were trying to take services closer to the communities for families who had disabled children. 60% of my region is mountainous. I mean, you can imagine it's the foothills of the Himalayas. So transport, terrain, real challenges. Um, the other thing we really did as an organization was we were instrumental to train different levels of personnel in the health system, from doctors to community health workers to nurses, really to help them understand what typical development in children was all about. And also to pick up red flags for delays in development, deviation in development, what is the rationale behind early intervention? And what is the impact that early intervention could have on the quality of the life of the child and also his or her family? So disability research is the other thing which is starkly lacking in my region. So we also initiated implementation research in the foundation to inform our own practice. 
Were we being effective? Did parents find our services useful? Was there progress being made by the children around the developmental goals, etc.? Uh, like I said earlier, I was also a mentor with the Global Health Mentorships Program. So what I've tried to do is really to engage with, to inspire and encourage young emerging global health practitioners, both medical doctors and public health students, towards a career which can bring together disability and global health. But this is now. When I started 10 years ago, for a long, long time, I remained an outlier because mostly no one in my professional circles really understood what global health was. And when I tried to tell them that I was trying to bring together childhood disability and global health, there was usually this deafening silence in the room. And I must admit, I've struggled, I've lost heart, and I've been plain miserable at times, because I worked very hard to fit in into disability networks as the lone global health professional and into global health networks as the only one who worked on disability, that to childhood disability. But it's been 10 years now, and how do I feel now? I feel like I'm a professional who has a unique set of skills, who can contribute much to her cause. And I feel like my mountain is waiting and I must be on my way. So really associating with Sarah took this collaboration to another level. And I'm so happy that we are trying to put disability out there in the global health world in every possible way that we could. Yeah. And it's been an exciting journey and, and a much needed collaboration, especially in the context of the, the COVID pandemic, because a lot of this work in global health equity um, really speaks to how um, we haven't really been able as, a, as public health leaders and also disability people haven't been able to collaborate to ensure inclusion. And I think COVID is really showing that um, what happens when you don't consider these people with disabilities in pandemic preparedness. Uh, so for instance, internationally, we have seen evidence that people with disabilities are at higher risk of contracting SARS-CoV-2 because of various in-person care requirements, place of residence, such as a group home or a congregate setting, age, uh, difficulty adhering to public health measures, and other social determinants of health. Here in the UK, uh, we've seen probably the most poignant example of adverse outcomes from COVID-19, where People with disabilities have made up 60% of COVID-19 deaths, but only make up 17% of the population. Various groups of people with disabilities are at a particular risk, um, such as people with Down syndrome, who are at five to 10 times higher risk of mortality, or non-ambulatory people with multiple sclerosis, who have experienced a 25 times higher mortality. And despite these studies, there have been few countries who have prioritized people with disabilities, made vaccination centers accessible, or ensured protections are sufficient for at-risk groups when reopening, which has com only compounded these poor outcomes. So a lot of my work with Shuba has been looking at, um, at some of these inequities and trying to address it because, again, these, this overlap doesn't really work. And aside from these adverse outcomes, um, in mortality and morbidity, we've also seen significant social outcomes. Um, in Canada, for instance, more people with disabilities have reported having their hours reduced, being furloughed, 
or losing jobs compared to non-disabled people. For many who have been exceptionally high risk, isolating in homes for the past year has been the only option to stay safe, even if it means giving up services like home care, uh, typical healthcare needs, physical therapy, or employment for those who can't work from home. This period of prolonged isolation has been exceptionally challenging for many people with disabilities, mental health, especially as some places started opening up, just not in a safe and inclusive way. For me personally, this has meant uh, my family has adhered to strict social distancing and public health guidance since early March with no exception. Um, we've rarely seen people outside our house to mitigate risk of infection. Um, and even though these measures are unsustainable, um, they were the only option. And so uh, fortunately in Canada, we've had access to the vaccine. We're all now fully vaccinated and can somewhat resume, but this isn't the case for many people with disabilities around the world, either because they haven't been prioritized for the vaccine or um, accessibility considerations haven't been in place for vaccination programs to make sure that uh, people can access it. So like I said, we are in the Himalayan state of India. So access is anyway difficult and utilization of services is anyway poor. And this particularly holds good for children with disabilities. So for our children and their families in the pandemic, they have been differentially affected because of reduced access to routine health and intervention services, because of higher risk of getting COVID and higher risk of poor outcomes from the virus, but also because of being left out of all the planning when this lockdown was declared as an emergency in India. So a historically marginalized community was again at risk of being left out completely, and that's exactly what happened. So challenges emerging from the pandemic included isolation, being cut off from services such as our organizations, being cut off from caregivers, being cut off from all the allied health professionals who would visit them at home or in the intervention centers, whether they were physiotherapists, speech and language pathologists, occupational therapists, etc. So telehealth, which we have never imagined in the last 25 years since we've existed, was now becoming possible to use for physical therapy or speech therapy. In fact, it became the main mode of contact with our families. Parents did all the heavy lifting during the lockdown and they became different kinds of therapists for their children. And this was in addition to shouldering all the other responsibilities. So you can imagine the amount of stress, the amount of pressure that these families were under. But somehow for them, that daily phone call from the Latikaroi Foundation or that weekly video call with our staff really became a helpline. And many, many parents reported that their anxiety levels and their stress levels were really controlled because of this connection with us. Outside our organization, everyone with disabilities was affected, but it was the women with disabilities who have been subject to more neglect, abuse, violence, and isolation. Like you know, one of the strictest lockdowns in the world was imposed in India. So both women with and without disabilities face serious problems during this pandemic. A report by Rising Flame and by Sightsavers in 2020 indicated that 75 out of the 82 women who participated in the study had struggled with accessing either information, physical spaces, communication, digital spaces, health services, food, and other essentials. 
women were subject to more than the usual neglect abuse and violence both sexual and otherwise and these are women who have been historically neglected by both the disability landscape and the feminist landscape so things just got really bad for them and one of the things that also happened was the digital divide it widened it made learning very difficult for our kids with disabilities who were going to mainstream schools because none of the classes were accessible and a lot of our children live below the poverty line anyway so there was no way they could access online classes at all this apart none of the pandemic advisories or information that was being provided was accessible and people with disabilities were not prioritized for the vaccine anywhere in the country no vaccination center till today has been deliberately made accessible in fact in our organization our legal consultant had to fight to the nail with the district administration to try and get the vaccine to our own organization and finally last month we got 29 young adults with disabilities vaccinated on our premises so having said all of the above the pandemic has made the world smaller for everyone but more so for our kids and their families but also because of technology i feel like we could connect with many more families who were lost to follow up definitely these these challenges have been amplified in the pandemic while providing spaces online that are perhaps more accessible with captions and and no barriers to physical spaces um have opened up opportunity given these spaces require resources it has been an inequitable amount of um access for certain people with disabilities um but given all these ch- challenges it's definitely important as we move forward and continuing to respond to the pandemic um that we recognize the importance of translating equitable access policies for people with disabilities which is something Shubha and I are quite interested in I previously have worked for the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation or CEPI on their foundational equitable access policy to ensure that vaccines were available when and where they are most needed in the event of an epidemic. After working there uh in 2018, I've recently become interested in thinking about what this looks like in distributing vaccines at subnational levels. And since November, I've been advocating for and with other advocates with disabilities to prioritize people with disabilities for the COVID vaccine in my home province of Ontario and also around the world. A lot of this has been sending emails to officials, writing reports and articles and talking to people to raise awareness about the disproportionate impacts the pandemic has had on our community. Um but most recently it's resulted in developing a framework on what accessible testing and vaccination looks like for people with disabilities. To date, we've used this to measure how Ontario is doing across 18 key accessibility dimensions on publicly available accessibility information. What we found is that there's limited information uh and likely limited considerations that pose additional barriers to people with disabilities even when they're prioritized for vaccination. And so without uh concerted efforts and political will, we're unlikely to see any changes for this at-risk population in other ways despite the need to have the vaccine because of ways it can protect individuals in other ways public health measures have failed. Uh and despite finding this information and 
also seeing just the devastating impacts the pandemic has had on people with disabilities. Uh, silver lining of this has been collaborating with other people with disabilities at home and allies, including other Rhodes Scholars like Matthew Downer and Steiny Brown, and of course, Atlantic Fellows like Shuba. Thank you. So for us, um, as the only public health person in an organization of 120 people, I became the voice of the pandemic. So I was sharing all these public health advisories with my staff almost on a weekly basis so that they understand the seriousness of this pandemic and everybody wears a mask and maintains that spatial distance. And it's really difficult for our children to wear masks because some of them drool, some of them have other behavioral issues. So that became a bit of a challenge. And social distancing or spatial distancing becomes impossible when a child is completely dependent on his parents or his or her caregivers for all the care that they need. So that was from the point of view of the organization itself. But that apart, like Sarah said, yes, we worked on an op-ed which was relating to translating equitable access for people with disabilities. And uh, we really addressed five key ways to make sure that accessibilities would be considered in the rollout of vaccines. For example, vaccination locations must be accessible. They must be in accordance with the local laws. An accessible facility should include everything from the physical space to the facility's environment. And if the focus could shift to accessible locations close to the community or at that doorstep even, more people with disabilities could receive their vaccine. Within countries and regions, distribution and administration sites should be at easy-to-reach locations, which are again universally accessible, located close to accessible transport, and are easy to book. Vaccine drives could deliberately target people with disabilities, along with their families, caregivers, therapists, teachers, and medical staff who support them. Countries must make COVID-19 resources, including information, advisories, and public announcements accessible for everyone. So easy to read in multiple formats, such as large font, videos with captions, sign language interpretation, and braille. And finally, staff training is key to shifting attitudes towards disability. It was important that staff who vaccinate people with disabilities should be trained and educated in advance to the best extent possible. For example, training in communication and accommodation so, as, so that the experience is inclusive and accessible to disabled people. And these are definitely key areas for accessibility, but as we think about some of the actions that have led to the need for this advocacy, I think one of the most important ones is the disability leadership vacuum. Uh, I think a lot of the barriers to inclusion or appropriate consideration of how to protect people with disabilities in this pandemic has stemmed from a lack of disability inclusive leadership and representation. Few policymakers or people in public health have disabilities themselves. And so I think while people understand the importance or the legal obligation of disability inclusion, they don't know how to implement it in practice or champion it because it seems like an unrelatable problem. Yet a lot of people don't realize that disability actually impacts 15% of the world's population. And so it's very important that we think, as we think about fostering inclusive recoveries, as we think about how can we build back better, that we really center people with disabilities within this plan. 
Yeah. So in India, disability advocates, activists, experts were completely left out of the pandemic planning. So inclusion, therefore, was not a priority at all. All efforts were piecemeal, fragmented, and conducted mostly by civil society organizations or by disability advocates themselves in their own local contexts. But I feel that disabled leaders are better equipped to negotiate health for their populations and to deliver better health outcomes for them. So what we really need is systems leadership, leadership that involves working across sectors, working through all levels of the health system, and also other allied systems like social welfare, et cetera, so that governance structures and laws are developed that mandate inclusion of people with disabilities. Because unless structural changes are not legalized, no amount of goodwill and passion can make accessibility happen. And with this will come the mindset shift towards a positive mindset that creates acceptance towards neurodiversity and a move towards making the environment accessible rather than fixing a person with disability. And this leads me on to the next topic, which is, do you think COVID has provided an opportunity to shift accessibility front and center of the COVID recovery plans? Or how can we ensure that this happens in future? This is not going to be the last crisis. We are going to have many more in future. We know that for, now, for sure. But as this crisis continues, one question looms large in front of all of us. How can we address the long-standing systemic inequalities that this pandemic has laid bare for all of us? And perhaps the greatest confrontation is to comprehend that we have consciously or unconsciously ignored people with disabilities, not just in India, but globally. And unless we confront the failure of the privileged and the powerful groups, a fair world will not be possible. So while COVID-19 has created a human crisis of unprecedented scale, it also presents an opportunity to reimagine disability inclusion. Also for me, there is one other concern that keeps me awake at night, the dominance of the global North in the universalizing and totalizing tendencies of work around disability, whether it's writing, programming, policy, etc. And I feel that this has resulted in the marginalization of experiences from the global South. So the experience of colonization and colonialism in the global South was both disabling and devastating for the inhabitants. The, while the agenda of disability pride and celebration in the global norm, I feel, stands in stark contrast to the need to prevent mass impairments in the global south. So can we reimagine the disability discourse in the aftermath of the pandemic and bring together the global north and the global south into a fair partnership where both of us have a voice, both of us have an opinion, and both of us have an idea about the way forward? I hope we can, Shiva, maybe together, we'll see. Um, but yeah, I also think that going forward, um, what we've seen is a tremendous amount of political will to rapidly change human behavior and to fund for a crisis and to sort of gather behind a cause. But we haven't seen that same sort of action on accessibility for people with disabilities. Yet there's been opportunities such as the decade UN Decade for Action, uh, the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. And so the question really remains on how can we use this moment 
to really catalyze action on meaningful progress for people with disabilities. Um, and I think that people during this period of time have really understood what it's like to be excluded, what it's like to have to be left in your home. Um, and it doesn't map perfectly to a lot of the exclusion that people with disabilities face, but it should inspire us all to try and foster better inclusion, whether that be North, South, um, people with disabilities and people without, uh, but just greater exclusion, inclusion as we return to normal. Um, recently, there have been significant commitments on disability inclusion, uh, including a recent World Health Assembly that seeks to integrate disability into health systems. But unless we do so with committed leadership from disabled people, uh, without buy-in and the political will that we've been able to see to really change uh, our actions and behavior to COVID, I think we are going to see limited change in the future. And we need this political will and action to pave the way for an accessible recovery. Absolutely. And like my um, executive director says, disability is not inability. In fact, it's an identity. It's the lived experience. And inclusion is no longer a choice to be made. In fact, it's the only way forward. And it's not about disabled people and sympathy or pity or disabled people being noble or inspiring. It's just about common sense. It's about human rights and it's about social justice. And the good news is that with intentionality and investment, we can get this done together. In fact, the future depends on it. So in conclusion to this series, I would like to share with you that even after decades of disability rights, people with disabilities continue to face significant barriers to social inclusion, to equal opportunity, to health and safety, and to financial security. And while some of the most visible efforts to continue the fight focus on changing ableist habits and attitudes, the most harmful and persistent barriers that disabled people face are still distinctly structural. So unless progress is made to remove structural barriers, we can't hope to achieve much. Also, it's going to take each one of us to make this happen. We have to start with where we are and what we can influence. And we each have to do our bit to advance this shared vision of an inclusive and fair world. For then we can build the world that we imagine. And when it comes to accessibility in health, the next step is about creating a holistic experience for someone who lives with a disability and to create an environment where they can reach their own potential. With that, I would thank you so much for joining us for another Roads Ahead. You can find more thought leadership content on the Roads Trust YouTube channel and Roads Connect. Thank you.